0: Great to be with you as we're discussing what I think is a really important and helpful conversation for us, especially as you live in the city, as you work in the city, as you operate uh, with us. Probably surrounded by people who have possibly had bad experiences with the church. Maybe you've had bad experiences with the church. Maybe the people you're working with want nothing to do with religion. Maybe they're a little bit nervous about religion. Maybe You wouldn't really want them to know that you were even here at a church on a Sunday because it might bring up some interesting or awkward conversations. So what are we supposed to do as a community, as those who are following Jesus, when it comes to this complex dance of living in the city and trying to explore a faith that is something for ourselves, that we want or need or possibly believe to be true, and yet have all around us people of various... uh, Beliefs, uh, values, and who possibly have had really negative experiences with Christianity. Um, I am drawn back, wanted to take you to a fun memory that I have. When I was 18 years old, I showed up here in Chicago. Uh, I was going to a Christian college down the road called Moody Bible Institute represent. I don't think anybody else besides my wife went to Moody. Uh, and Lisa, thank you, Lisa. Uh, I was at Moody and I desperately needed a job. And so I found myself, uh, had a friend introduce me to another friend who said, you will get paid, I think it was $12 an hour to stand on a street corner in downtown Chicago and hand out flyers for Berghoff's Restaurant's Oktoberfest. Anybody been, yeah, wow, there's more residents for that than Moody, which is, I understand. <laughs> Um, But it was a little ironic that I, at a Christian college, was sent to hand out flyers for beer fest happening down the road. And sure enough, I posted up on the street corner, was paid for like four hours to just stand and be one of those people, handing out flyers to everybody who walked past. And as I did so, fascinatingly, there across the corner from me, a man rolled his speaker happened to have a microphone to the opposing corner. And there, as I'm handing out advertisements for a beer fest around the corner, this man sets up on this corner, clearly something he'd done before, and he begins to say into his microphone the line, listen up, you can't get to heaven, smoking no cigarettes. Listen up, you can't get to heaven, smoking no cigarettes. Listen up, you, you can't get to heaven. And I'm standing there, and the first thing I felt, I don't know if you've had this experience at all, First thing I felt was this deep sense of sort of cringe embarrassment, like, oh no, here we go, like, wow, how long do I have to be here (laughs) to listen to this man preach this same message over and over and over again? Oh, like Christians, this is why Christians get a bad reputation, this happens all the time, here we go, okay. But then, after about 15 minutes of processing my sort of cringe embarrassment, I started to listen to his message, and I got really Sort of bemused, almost. I don't know about you, but if you slow down with it, you can't get to heaven, smoking no cigarettes. It's it's short. It's quippy. I'll give him that. Like it, he he had it down, Pat. Uh, he had definitely memorized his line. know, I was sitting there thinking, like this is this is just not true. Like what? Like <laughs> cigarettes? Like of all the things that you could be focused on, not getting you to heaven, like cigarettes surely is not the, the biggest concern if we're going to you know, confront something on the street corner. And then, even more fascinatingly, right, what I began to really notice was that this man who was standing there on the street corner would occasionally see people he knew. So he's, he's speaking into his microphone. He's saying this line over and over again. Nobody's talking to him. Nobody's engaging him, except when a person would show up who clearly was his friend, who probably went to the same church as him, and they would talk and smile, and they give him a hug. This happened probably three or four times, and all of a sudden, I am not joking you, one of the most interesting moments of my life, I'm standing there on the corner as another man in a suit walks up, sees him, smiles, pats him on the back, and I see him hand him an envelope that clearly looks like it has money or something in it, and then the man, you know, smiles. They kind of interact for a bit. He walks off, and a couple minutes later, the man packs up his microphone, his case, he rolls it off. And I'm just standing there thinking about what I've just witnessed and seen. And I bring this story up to you because I think it's a perfect setup for the pressure and the contradiction many of us have felt around evangelism for the last several decades. Being uh, either a Christian or being around Christians here in the United States, if you've ever gone downtown, you've seen these people who stand on the street corner who, if I could gently say look more like salesmen, saleswomen, than they do like evangelists, standing, proclaiming a line, a phrase. Normally it's condemnation, normally it's judgment, and just the strangeness of being there long enough to observe that the real thing this person was receiving from this experience was not actual conversions, was not actual conversations even. The real thing this man was receiving was the encouragement and accolades from his community that he was doing a noble, sacrificial task that, by the way, none of the rest of them (laughs) clearly wanted to be doing, right? So so my challenge for us this morning is this. If that's not the way to do evangelism, if that's not what I would encourage you is a good way to follow Jesus, is there any other way? Is there a better way? Um, Here's our dilemma. When Jesus appeared, Jesus said to us, I came to seek and to save the lost. Jesus said, I'm here because there are those who are far away from God, those who have found themselves lost in this world, and I came because I want to seek them out. This is the heart of Jesus. And so for that reason, there's two things we're really trying to do with this series. The first thing we want to do is sort of recover a vision of what evangelism could be if it's not a microphone on a street corner focused on cigarettes. Uh, What would evangelism look like here and now today? And that's why our second objective is to teach you the blessed practices, which we believe are actually a tangible, gentle, sustainable, humble way to focus not on converting, but actually on blessing those that we're interacting with. So last week, we began with the first uh, practice in the blessed practices, which was begin with prayer. If you were with us, it was great sort of opening uh, vision of where we're going. And for those of you who were with us last week, we handed you a card that we still have out on the table if any of you would like to come get it. A card where we encourage you to write down the name of eight neighbors. Eight neighbor, neighbors that you could tangibly bless by beginning with prayer. Um, this week we're going to talk about the second letter, L, which is going to stand for listen. But before we do, I think some of what we need to do is keep building this case for why why evangelism matters. Not evangelism done in a salesy way, a conversionary way, a preachy way, but evangelism done in a real, tangible, incarnational friendship way. And in order to make this case, I want to take you to Jesus himself. And I'm going to take you to a passage you've probably heard before. This is in the Gospel of Matthew. So this is going to be Matthew 22, 37 to 40. I want to draw your attention to an interesting facet to this passage you probably recognize. Jesus replies to a person who asks him, what is the greatest commandment? Jesus is going to say this, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. Okay, at this point, I have not shared anything revolutionary with you. If you've been around the church, you've probably heard this passage. You've seen it. I get it, John. We're supposed to love God. And wait, let's slow down, right? What does Jesus say the second greatest commandment is, the one that stands right next to loving God? It is that we are told to love our neighbor as ourself. Love our neighbor as ourselves, I'm drawn to ask to the man standing on a street corner speaking into the microphone, is he loving his neighbors with what he's doing? Probably not. But are we, are we in our day-to-day lives loving our neighbors in tangible, expressive ways connected to our love of God? Maybe. Maybe we are. If, if we're going to understand how or what or why Jesus is talking about this idea of loving our neighbors, I wanted to take you on a quick journey through the Bible. For those of you who have been around, you know I tend to like doing a little detour into the Old Testament to give us a little bit of background. Um, here's the thing that I love. Jesus here, uh, I think, often gets a reputation of being some incredible innovator, right? Like Jesus was the one who showed up, and when Jesus started teaching, man, Jesus's ideas were crazy. Uh, that's not Technically true. In fact, if you pay close attention to this previous passage, in fact, Sean, if you want to throw it up on the screen, uh, Jesus notes here that the idea to love your neighbor is the summary of all the law and all the prophets. Right. So let me give you just a quick whirlwind tour through why Jesus believes this is the case. First, I take you all the way back to Leviticus 19:18, and here's just a fun. Little early commandment where God, giving the law to Israel, is going to start talking about the importance of a neighbor. God says this You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. It's right there from the very beginning, the idea being you're there surrounded by by neighbors. Normally in this case, there'd be sort of tribes. These are probably even extended family, right? And if you've ever been around extended family at holidays, sometimes things get a little tense. Uh, In fact, God seems to take seriously that vengeance is a desire that we sometimes feel when we are with our extended family. And instead, God says, listen, don't don't take out a grudge, don't enact vengeance, but instead love your neighbor as yourself. Here's the next verse. This is Proverbs 3.23. The book of Proverbs is gathering up of the wisdom of the people of God so that they can know how to live in the world. They're going to say, Do not plot harm against your neighbor who lives trustfully near you. Do not plot harm. Your neighbor is the one who's right next to you. Your neighbor's sharing space, they're sharing land, they're sharing possibilities. Like, if, if your neighbor starts to suffer, you're going to suffer, right? Like, you can't have your neighbor suffering and have you somehow be doing incredibly well, unaffected by the, uh, by the challenges that your neighbor is facing. So God says, take care of the neighbor. Like, don't plot harm, but like, your neighbor's the one who should be living in trust with you. Let me take you to another one, Deuteronomy 24.10. This is one of my favorites. A uh, little bit of context. In the ancient world, if you were making a loan, it wasn't quite like the banking system we have today, where you'd put a nice little signature, and then the bank entrusts you with thousands upon thousands of dollars so that they can get high return rates paid monthly and you are enslaved to their model, right? That's not what was going on. Instead, it was much simpler. In the ancient world, if you needed to borrow some capital, so this is maybe like food or maybe you have some material that you're missing out on, or maybe it's even like the neighbor's horse that you need to borrow for a bit, you would give them a pledge, And that pledge was normally one of the most valuable things you owned in the ancient world was your cloak. Your cloak was this sort of overcoat. It's what kept you warm. It was quite costly to make. Uh, It was super valuable, obviously, as the weather would turn. So you would give them the pledge of your cloak, and then they would be able to offer you whatever it was you needed as a loan. All this context sets us up. Notice what God is saying about our neighbors in Deuteronomy 24.10. When you make a loan of any kind to your neighbor, do not go into their house to get what is offered to you as a pledge. Stay outside and let the neighbor to whom you are making the loan bring the pledge out to you. It is the na- If the neighbor is poor, do not go to sleep with their pledge in your possession. Return their cloak by sunset so that your neighbor may sleep in it then they will thank you and it will be regarded as a righteous act in the sight of the Lord your God. Now, I know this is the weirdest verse you were not expecting to get this morning as you came to talk about evangelism, but look at how practical this is, right? This is sort of fascinating. God is like, listen, I know, I know. When hard times come and your neighbor comes to you and your neighbor needs your help, you're gonna get all uppity and controlling and maybe you're gonna barge into their house to demand their pledge or you're gonna be like, this is your pledge, I, I better get the thing back from you that I've loaned to you. I don't trust you, neighbor. And God is like, listen, especially, especially if they're poor, Like, don't, don't offer them something and then attempt to control them as you wait to receive it back. Instead, this is your neighbor, right? This is your neighbor. Love your neighbor as yourself. Here's one last one. This is Proverbs 14.21. I promise we're almost done in the Old Testament. We'll get back to Jesus. Proverbs <laughs> says this, it's a sin to despise one's neighbor, but blessed is the one who is kind to the needy. So the reason why I walk you through this whole quick sweep of the Old Testament is that I want to convince you, I want to convince you first and foremost, that it has always been God's idea that our neighbors matter to God. Let me say that one more time because I just want to let it sink in. As you think about our city, as you think about your actual apartment building or your actual block that you live on or those coworkers that you actually see day in and day out, your neighbors matter to God. Isn't that amazing? From the very beginning, from the ancientest of laws, all the way up to Jesus, God again and again and again is saying, if there's one thing I can form you in, if there's one thing I can shape in you, if you learn to love your neighbor, you will learn to love me. This is how central and important to God's whole plan to bless the entire world, the idea of the neighbor is. And so we jump ahead to Jesus, and I'm sure you don't even need me to to finish convincing you, but let me draw your attention to some classic stories where you notice that Jesus, while he is not the innovator, perhaps, that we sometimes give him credit for, Jesus is a little bit of a provocative extender. Um, If those who were with Jesus were like, yeah, yeah, we get in Israel law, that the neighbors matter to God. We will love in a subdued way our neighbor. Jesus says, let me, let me talk to you a little bit more about who your neighbor is. You, of course, know the story in Luke 10, when a man approaches Jesus, asks him what the greatest commandments is. Jesus tells him, love God, love your neighbor. But then this man, who we're told is a lawyer, apologies to any lawyers in the room, but Lawyers, lawyers tend to be a little bit persnickety. They're, they're trying to sort of push Jesus a bit, like, okay, how many neighbors do I actually have? The man is going to say to Jesus, he, desiring to, just, to justify himself, said to Jesus, but who is my neighbor? Luke 10:19. And of course, Jesus then proceeds to tell him this story. Hey, there was a man who was walking down the road who was attacked by thugs. He was lying there, half dead, in the side of the road, and then a Levite, the Israelite, religious leader of the day, comes walking by, and he passes him on the side of the road. Then, of course, a priest from the temple who also should be there to love and know God's law and care about the things God cares about, to love his neighbor. He comes, sees the man, and walks by. But it is a Samaritan, the reviled ethnic minority who's there sort of strangely between Israel and the surrounding Roman Empire. No Jewish person, looked up to or loved their Samaritan neighbors. But this Samaritan sees this Jewish man lying on the side of the road, and he cares for him. He takes him in. He uh, tends to him. And then, uh, at him being healed, the man says, any cost this man is going to take, I'll bear it on myself. At this point, Jesus looks to this lawyer and says, as only Jesus could, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor To the man who fell among the robbers, the lawyer says, "The one who showed him mercy." Jesus said to him, "You go and do likewise." Right. So here's Jesus taking this central idea to who God is. He's not changing a thing, but he's pushing, extending us out, saying, "Listen, don't just be a neighbor. Be be the neighbor. Be the neighbor who shows mercy." One more sermon on the mount. Jesus says you have heard it was said love your neighbor and hate your enemy but i tell you love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you that you may be children of your father in heaven if you're tracking with jesus in his day he's actually just raised the stakes i think there was a little bit of sense in the jewish world still be the same way today for us that they're like yeah 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 we get it like our neighbors they're here like there are people but our enemies our enemies, and Jesus says, no, actually, your enemies are your neighbors too, (laughs) right? Pray for your enemies, love those who persecute you. All of this takes us back to the passage that we started with in this journey through the Bible as we're looking at the neighbors that we are called to love. Let me just read you one more time the full context of that passage that set us up this morning for this exploration of neighbors. We're told in the Gospel of Mark one of the scribes came up and heard other scribes disputing with, no, with another. And seeing that Jesus had answered these scribes well, he asked Jesus, which commandment is the most important of all? Jesus answered, the most important is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. And the second is this, you shall love your neighbor As yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. But here's the fun end to the story. This is verse 32. This is another scribe, another lawyerly type, who's getting that Jesus is saying something quite serious and quite profound. And so the scribe says back to Jesus, You are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one and there is none other beside him. And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding, with all the strength, to love one's neighbor as yourself is much more than all the whole burnt offerings. And sacrifices. When Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of heaven. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. Okay, so what do we do with this? What do we do with this teaching of Jesus that points us so fixedly on our neighbors and asks us the same provocative question that so many in Jesus' day were trying to poke at Jesus? The question is this Who is your neighbor? <laughs> Who is your neighbor? Um, I think what has happened for so many of us, even as you've maybe been around the church or heard these teachings or just in general wanted to be a good person, I think our greatest challenge is that we open ourselves up to this command to love our neighbors. We, we feel Jesus telling us to do this quite seriously, and then we kind of look out at the city of Chicago, which has somewhere around 2.4 million people, right, wandering the streets and surrounding metropolitan area that has something like 11 to 12 million people wandering around us in Chicagoland. And we feel this great pressure, but then we also feel this generalized sense of love that we're like, I love my neighbor. I have love for any of the 12 million plus people that wants to wander into my life. I get you, Jesus. I will love any of these people as they live around me. And I think that's a very understandable thing for us to do because of the intense pressure we feel to be a good person and to love our neighbor. But let me get really concrete and focused with you because I think Jesus is actually doing that in these teachings. I think even these Old Testament teachings are pointing us to be concrete. Who is your actual neighbor? (laughs) Not, not the 12 million Chicagoland inhabitants who surround you. Who is your actual neighbor? And this is why I think it's so helpful to narrow this thing down to eight. Do you have eight people in your life right now who are your neighbors? Are these eight people maybe your family members? It's okay for your family members to be your neighbors. They may be your enemies too, just, just gently saying, you may have a few of those that you need to begin praying for. Um, are they your tangible neighbors? So do you know, possibly, the person who lives above you? Do you know the person who lives below you or next to you? And I'm not telling you to meet the whole building, by the way. I'm just saying, do you know, like, one or two of these neighbors? Just start with one or two tangible neighbors around you. Here's some of my favorite neighbors. You probably work with other people, right? I I think you're tracking with me, yeah? In working with other people, these are probably people for most of us, unlike me when you get stuck going to church with the person that you're working with, uh, John and I and Marissa, we're like in church and we're working together. You're probably working with people who do not go to your church. They would be wonderful people to consider one of your eight neighbors. Now, the follow-up question to who is your neighbor is the question, what are you supposed to do with these neighbors now that you've identified them? And for us, uh, what we've been encouraging you to consider is how you might bless these people. Quite tangibly bless them, not, you may have noticed, convert these people. But instead, we're inviting you to say, how could I bless these people? And let me take you very tangibly into uh, our blessed practices. You see the bless up on the screen. If we could even get the different symbols up for each of the different letters. We've got a logic to this. Um, the, the progression of blessing, if you will, starts with prayer. It's quite simply. Uh, prayer is the way to pray for, uh, to attend to another person in your circle of influence concretely. Uh, normally these prayers get better and better that I tend to start, you know, we've got three guys who live above us right now, and my initial prayers for them are simply, hey God, there's those three guys up there, uh, they stomp around sometimes. We don't really know what they're doing. Um, I pray you would be with them this week and see what's going on, right? But as you start praying for them, uh, you start to notice man, I've got a lot of gaps there in my knowledge, right? And the gaps quite quickly can be filled by doing simple things like, hey, what's your name? <laughs> right? As we're like crossing each other in the steps. It's nice to meet you. I live right over there. Um, hey, where, where do you work? Oh, cool. Now I've got something I can pray for you about, that job that you're working in. Uh, hey, uh, you seem to visit your mom a lot. Uh, that's one of our neighbors above us. Uh, what's, what's going on? You, is she doing okay? You know, like, are you doing okay? Are you... But it's amazing that if you can actually just start to pray for somebody, you're going to begin to notice that there's a lot of information you don't have and it's going to draw you into their orbit just that little bit more. This especially is true with coworkers. This might even be true with family members. I mean, when was the last time you went out of your way to make a spontaneous phone call to just check in with a family member and, and very concretely even say, hey, I, I've been praying for you. Is there anything I can pray for you about this week? Um, but from there, the next step, the step that we're talking about this morning, is the step to listen to listen. I love that the reason why we we delved so deep into neighbors is that the reason Jesus wants us to discover or identify who our neighbors are is so that we can actually pay attention to the needs going on in our neighbors' lives. So here's three very concrete tools for you, very concrete tools, um, that are slightly drawn from background in therapy, from therapeutic stuff, Uh, But these tools are especially helpful if you go to see a therapist. The therapist will basically professionally be doing these three things. And yet I just want to encourage you in this mini five-minute training I'm about to give you, these are not super hard things to master. And these tools can be deployed in the presence of your neighbors. So first and foremost, this tool called reflective listening. If any of you heard of reflective listening, and if any of you are married or engaged or dating and you haven't heard of this, I would highly encourage you to lean in right now so that you can learn this skill of reflective listening. Um, one of my favorite depictions of reflective listening comes in the American version of The Office. If any of you saw The Office where Jim and Pam start having problems in their marriage, And they're sitting across from each other because they're working together, and their therapist told them to do reflective listening, which is simply summarizing what the other person has said and then offering your feelings in response to whatever it is that you've just summarized the other person has said. But, of course, it wonderfully goes awry that Jim is like, I'm hearing you say, Pam, that you need more space. And I feel sad to think that space is something you need. And Pam's like, well, I'm hearing you, Jim, say you're sad. But to be honest, I'm feeling like that space is really necessary right now. And in between them is the intern, right, who's sitting there like, what the heck am I in the middle of? Um, Reflective listening simply is leaning in to pay enough attention to be able to summarize whatever it is a person has just shared with you. amazingly, when it comes to our neighbors especially, and again, I'm just gonna keep poking you into like coworkers or family members or the person living right next door. It's so easy to be moving so fast that even if you manage to squeeze off a question of like, oh yeah, how's your week been? How was your weekend? Yeah, what'd you get up to? Oh, cool, cool, yeah, no. So what I did was I was doing this, right? And before we know it, the conversation has just slipped by. To listen artfully is to stand there with your coworker, and when you ask them, how was your weekend? And they say, oh, I went to uh, this party on Friday night. Uh, You say, oh, cool, a party. Wow, that's awesome. Literally, it's that simple. Um, I'm, I'm telling you, we're just gonna pause there, right? We're just moving through listening, and this gets even more and more helpful with your roommates and with, again, somebody you're dating. If you are trying to converse with them, start by just summarizing what you've heard. Oh, I'm hearing you had a busy day today. I'm sorry that you had a busy day. Oh, it's, it's been a fun day. Oh, it's been a fun day. That's all we're doing with reflective listening, right? You're just summarizing. Then the next tool becomes very helpful, which is the art of the follow-up question, right? It's simply internalizing in your brain, hey, when this person shares what it is that they've done, when this person shares what's been going on in their life, when they talk about why they're traveling out to see their mom so often, I'm not just going to land it like a dud. I'm not just going to leave it off to the side of the road. I'm going to instead pick it up, and I'm going to walk back to them, and I'm going to say, hey, give me even more information about that. I'm, I'm genuinely interested. Uh, tell me about how that party was. How did you meet that friend? Uh, who, who is that friend to you? Uh, oh, what was it like to be there at that party? What was the most fun thing you did? Um, This is, uh, unfortunately, in parenting, the skill that drives children crazy. Uh, I was just reflecting out in the lobby that our four-year-old daughter comes home from pre-K every day and like detectives, Jenna and I get into the car and we immediately are like, hey, how was your day? And she's like, I'm four, so it was like, it was good. And we're like, what'd you do today? And she's like, um, color. But we then are like, what'd you, what color did you color with? What was, what was the best part about coloring today? Uh, was your friend with you? Uh, what's going on? And here's the thing. It's, it can be intense, can be intentional, but it actually communicates love, right? <laughs> if you think about the friends in your lives, and you think about the ways that they love you, what's the most loving thing they can do for you? friends in your lives can reflect what they're hearing from you, and then they can follow up. We just uh, spent some time with friends the other night. They were asking how our week went, and Jen and I kind of did the like, oh, it was all right, you know, there's just been some things going on. And that's the moment when in a busy conversational day, you keep moving. But this friend of ours so wonderfully, so graciously was like, tell tell me more. What, What was going on? What was, what was hard? You know, like, I want to I wanna know. I want to hear. This then leads to the final skill, and this one is perhaps the most complicated uh, task of listening. It's called uh, empathetic attunement. Uh, Brene Brown is great on this. She talks all the time about empathy. Uh, Brene Brown likes to point out that empathy is not Sympathy. We sometimes can get into a trap when we are listening to somebody, they say something, and then we either say, that must be really hard for you, (laughs) right? Like, oh, I'm so sorry, that's so hard for you. Or we say something like, oh, yeah, that happened to me, yeah. Uh, So this one time last week, you know, I was at a party and this was what was going on. I was visiting my mother. Instead, uh, empathetic listening attempts to move from sympathy into empathy. And Brene Brown describes empathy as feeling alongside by drawing on memories of sharing similar feelings to whatever the person is describing, and then offering to them the assurances that you can understand a part of what they're feeling because of the experiences you've had in your life as well. So, of course, this this is a skill that many of you do here so wonderfully. But I know, at times, uh, we've had friends who have deeply struggled with infertility. And as we've engaged these friends, um, my wife and I, currently, with God's grace, have not really had to move through that personally. But we've had to move through family members struggling with it. We've walked with other friends who have struggled with it. We have felt medical pressures in our own life and our marriage. We know how much we wanted kids and so we we kind of ponder and contemplate what it would feel like to want kids but to not be able to have kids. And as you move through that process, it does take a bit of work, right? This is kind of where we grow into more and more and more loving people. But what you do is not say, "Oh, that must be hard for you." Nor do you say, "Oh, that's I get it. I've had stuff like that happen to me." But instead you go, "Man, I can only imagine how hard this is for you right now. And I'm just so sorry from experiences I've had uh, in the past that were different than that. I just can only imagine the questions, the uncertainty, the pressure. And I just want to let you know, like whatever we can do to help support you, uh, we're here for you. If you could begin to master all three of these skills, really, what you begin to discover is that your neighbors are not actually that hard to love, are they? In fact, instead of having to preach at them with a microphone, instead of telling them about all the cigarettes, they should not be smoking if they intend to get into heaven, uh, what you begin to notice is that your neighbors are living lives, full lives, with tons of needs, with all kinds of clues about how their lives might need God might need hope, might need purpose might need more love, might even need just deeper friendship. And as you start to master the art of listening, what you begin to discover is actually you're becoming a better and better friend. In fact, the better friend you are, the more people are going to want to be friends with you. And if you can start listening more and more and more to your coworkers, to your neighbors, to your family members, what you start to realize is the way you could bless them with Jesus is not to change their thinking, but is to, to simply love them into the very relationship with Jesus that has become so meaningful to you. So I am not here to pretend like blessing and conversion or moving friends who are far from God to being close to God is an easy process. In fact, I think it's probably the opposite, especially here in the city. I think this practice of listening is going to take you some work to hone your skills, to sort of fiddle the dials to figure out which of these three, reflective listening, the art of the follow up, maybe some more empathetic attunement, you're getting right, where maybe you're getting it wrong. And as you start to listen more and more and more, it's probably going to take time. We're talking months, maybe even years, for you to start moving with those people who are near you, whether they live above you or their coworkers you see on a regular basis or it's family members. Start moving into a more and more and more loving relationship with them. But then, as you love them and as you listen to them, probably they will start listening to you. And as we keep going with these blessed practices, we're going to share other ways as you start listening to them that you can keep then offering them the very good thing you have found in your relationship with Jesus. So let me just go ahead and pray before we move to the communion table. God, we want to become a church that listens well, listens well to you, hears your voice speaking to us. Then, Lord, that especially could become a church that loves our neighbors by listening to them. Lord, we just pray for your help in this. We know how easy it is to get distracted, to move too quickly, to center our own experiences and stories too fast. But, Lord, if we could... Learn to listen. We believe, Lord, that we would actually love not just each other better, but our neighborhood, our city better. And Lord, people would find their way back to you simply by being listened to well. So we lift up the plea for you to help us be transformed into better listeners in Jesus' name as we now come to your table. Amen.